Hey, this is Steve Balton, and you're here on a very special My Turning Point, where we have for the first time two guests, sisters Meg and Dia Frampton, who have been longtime friends, are here in what was their first interview in 10 years. We recorded this last month and held it until after the surprise release of their new record, Happy Sad, July 26th. Now that the record is out, we can finally share this really fun interview with you. So here we go with the great Megan Dia. So let's jump in, though. And as I said, <laughs> this is the first time that we're doing my turning point with two guests. Yes. So is there a, and it's funny, I, I feel like this is a very relevant one. Because, you know, it's been, what, 10 years since there was Meg and Dia music together? Yeah, I think our last album came out in 2009, I think. So and 10 years exactly. Yeah, and I mean, how are people, do Do our voices sound the same? This is Dia. Hi, this is Meg. Do we, same, what different? do you think, Steve? They're are pretty comparable. Know? Yeah, they're pretty, they're pretty similar, but I'm sure people who know you well... Anytime you hear something really intelligent, it's Meg. And then <laughs> Dia's the other one. What? <laughs> yeah, I'm. I, well, I think I'm a little Sibling higher. Sibling rivalry already. Wait, do you guys have like Oasis like fist fights and stuff? Mm. We just get. It's so funny because Meg and I have been to get. We've been rehearsing and writing and and we get in like little spats <laughs> every now and then on different things. And I think we just kind of go quiet for a little bit. Until something funny happens, and then we'll just laugh at somebody else and things are remedied. <laughs> but, yeah, we've gone through a lot of ups and downs in the past 10 years. So that's that's a good place to jump into my turning point. <laughs> Let's and, start there. <laughs> and figure out, no, what, I mean, well, my turning point is when you pick the moment that for for the person sort of changed their life musically. Whether it is, like, for example, Wayne Coyne being on the show and telling the crazy story of being robbed at gunpoint when he worked at a Long John Silver's as a teenager in Oklahoma City, and how when he was lying on the floor thinking he was going to die is when he made the decision not to go into the family business. Or it could be something as simple as Gavin Rossdale from Bush saying, I got a bass when I was 14 years old from my sister's, you know, from her his older sister's boyfriend, and that's what indoctrinated him into music because then he started going to punk rock shows with them. So it varies from person to person, mm -hmm. but it's interesting. So is there one sort of turning point moment for you guys that maybe ties into, for example, the decision to reunite after so many years mm -hmm. and decide that the time was right to do Megan Dia music again after, because Meg was telling me, Dia, while you were in the other room, that she had run a coffee shop in Utah for all these years, to which she said that she never would have been talking to me, which I told her is not true because I definitely would have talked to her in Utah. So what was that turning point moment that sort of created Megan Dia part two? I think a little bit of rock bottom, at least for me, this is Dia, the rock bottom person, <laughs> but it had been really a crazy journey because Meg and I had been playing music for so long. You know, we started playing Kind of, I mean, our first serious band when I was 14 and Meg was 16. And, and we were just in so many various bands together throughout high school. And we put out a bunch of albums. And then I ended up on The Voice season one. It kind of feels random how I ended up there. Because, you know, season one, it wasn't even really fully formed TV show at the time when I auditioned. But that kind of pushed me into this solo, crazy career that I hadn't expected at all. And after that, our relationship got really bad, and it kind of stayed there for a long time. I was actually telling Meg the other day that 
sometimes when you think something is permanent, it's not. And just that thought of it being permanent is so debilitating because we were hanging out, just kind of shooting the shit, being silly and goofy. And I thought, you know, Meg, years ago, I thought we'd never be sitting here talking like we're talking now, like really good friends and being silly again and and being so close because we felt so distant at one point, like couldn't be in the same room distant. Oh, okay. (laughs) I guess I should chime in here. Um, Yeah, that was that was really hard, like losing our friendship. And I think I don't know if you've heard this before, but when you have um, when you have one person and another person, and your relationship kind of creates this third entity, and so that third entity had essentially died, like passed away, and so there was like this grieving process of losing somebody you know who's so close to you and I didn't realize I think there was a period of denial where I was trying to convince myself like I don't need Dia I'm fine I can do life by myself you know but um even though we like Dia said we fight a lot it's not perfect we've had a lot of ups and downs you know sibling rivalry jealousy competition we are extremely close and um it's kind of hard to like I that might be rare for some people you know to have somebody who just gets you and you don't even have to talk and you understand each other and just to have that like other part of you like that other half and so losing that was extremely painful you know and even though it's been challenging now that we're working together again like we're our relationship isn't perfect and I'm certainly not perfect just as a person on like a human on my own like going through the pain of losing that once I'm like so much more willing to work through like whatever we need to work through to not not lose it again yeah we went to sister therapy like literal us literally us in an office with a therapist just us two Just like couples therapy almost, but I wonder how many people do it with their siblings. Maybe it's more normal than I think, but we were, you know, in therapy together for a while. This is so fascinating to me. I really want to like, I want to turn this into a fucking reality TV show. (laughs) Sibling band counseling. Adam is in a band with his brother, so they can attest to this. But I think that, you know, who wouldn't want to watch the Gallagher brothers and the Davies brothers from the Kinks, for people who don't know that reference, and the Black Crows Brothers. Come on, this would be the best reality show in the history of the world. Finding a specialized counselor who could sit uh, Liam and Noel down mm-hmm. together. Mm-hmm. Oh my God, I want to see this now. I, maybe you're, you should pitch it to your counselor. You can suggest <laughs> it to them. But it is really fascinating, because in, in all seriousness, though, it's funny, I remember talking about it with, I was so fortunate to get to interview Iggy Pop with Ron and Scott Ashton, speaking of siblings, you know, when the Stooges put out their first record in 29 years. And they said something so interesting is that as you get older, and Meg, we were kind of talking about this while Dio was in the other room, but I think it, it applies. I, I think what happens is they were saying as you get older, simply all that other stuff sort of falls away and you start to develop a deeper appreciation for what it is you created together. Mm -hmm. And it's also funny because you realize how much it means to people. Mm -hmm. And are you finding as well that now that you guys are going back out on the road with Warped Mm -hmm. for the first time in so many years, you're you're pleasantly surprised by the fact there is still an audience. This actually does mean something to people. And that also is something that sort of picks you up and, and, you know, gets like, I was just talking recently with Fred Durst from Limp Bizkit, who's become a good friend. And we were talking about this and it's like, he was saying how much he's enjoying it because the audience is there and they Mm -hmm. have fun. And when he sees the audience having fun, that inspires and excites him. 
Mm-hmm. Well, when I, um, Dia, hit, Dia said she hit rock bottom, and I also hit rock bottom <laughs> pretty recently. <laughs> and the thing that picked me up, like more than ice cream, counseling, psychedelic drugs, like would be music, you know? And I think for a while, like being an artist, I stopped going to shows. I kind of stopped listening to music. I just lost that part of myself a little bit. And then going to my first show in, in, I don't know, a long time, sitting in the audience, I went by myself, sat in the second row. And it just made me feel so alive when I was like going through something hard, you know? And I just appreciated them so much. I think I was in tears, like maybe through, I don't know, half of the set, you know? And then just realizing how much music and art can help me like feel alive and come out of something and get a new perspective. Now I can understand that maybe other people can be feeling that too while we're performing and you do gain a a greater appreciation for it. All right. The obvious question I have to ask, what was the show? It was a Joseph, the Joseph sisters. Okay. Um, I love their three harmonies. I just think they're so talented. Sisters that touched you. (laughs) I know it just hit me on so many levels. But now a second part to this question, what is the perfect music soundtrack for ice cream, counseling, and psychedelic drugs? I know. I was like, <laughs> right when Meg oh said God. psychedelic drugs, all of us kind of turned to look at each other. I was, I was thinking, you can't just skim over. I know. I was like, did I hit a nerve? Am I not supposed to talk about how I... <laughs> it's so I'll talk funny. About that. I'm good with that. I mean, it doesn't, you know, but I just want to know what the musical soundtrack is for that combination. I know. You have and what, to talk And what flavor about- of ice cream, by the way? Oh, um, Fruity Pebbles. So Fruity Pebbles ice cream? Any kind of ice cream that is the flavor of a cereal. So fruit-flavored ice cream. What's a psychedelic drug? Uh, ayahuasca. Okay. Meg went to Peru and did ayahuasca and had a little bit of a... <laughs> <laughs> of a, a journey. I guess that's a, <laughs> that's a nice way, way to, to say it. it. <laughs> <laughs> and what's the music that goes with ayahuasca and Fruity Pebbles ice cream? What would you be listening to at that time? Those oddly sound like they go super well together. I feel like the Beach Boys for some reason. That just seems... Hmm. There's no right or wrong. I I just feel like that that hits those points for me. And I don't really listen to them very much, but that just popped in my head. When you put those really odd combos together, I guess I did that. (laughs) Well, I mean, when it comes to psychedelic drugs, I do feel like the Beach Boys is a a valid soundtrack. Yeah. Yeah. So it is interesting. At what point, too, when you guys started... I imagine that it was something that... Tell me if I'm wrong, mm-hmm. but was it something where you guys sort of reinvigorated the the friendship and then the music sort of came as a, okay. And was there one mm-hmm. song early on that you guys were writing mm-hmm. or one moment that sort of put you in the perspective of this is what we want to do musically and, and mm-hmm. where you realized that it was time to do music again as a, as a duo? I think um, I started reaching out to Meg and we became you know, to the point where we could talk to each other on the phone, there was still some kind of awkward moments. Um, you know, we, we'd had such a long time of just not talking to each other, even over Christmas dinners and stuff. We have five sisters, so we kind of lean on them to get rid of the awkwardness that Meg and I had. Um, but Meg is a very spiritual person, and I'm kind of just an in-your-face mess of a person. But... I needed something to kind of fill me up again. I I just felt so lost in LA and so like trying to grasp at something. And I'd gone through making an album alone, which was not fun. Um, 
I mean, the people that I worked with were wonderful, but it just wasn't the same. Um, and then I called Meg and I asked her a question. And right when I asked her, you know, if you want to start up Meg and Dia again, she said, oh my gosh, I had been meditating and like vibrating on this for a week. And on the seventh day, you <laughs> called me and asked me. <laughs> so um, I guess I felt her vibrations. But yeah, we started to record again and it was really fun. I think Meg and I write very differently. I think because of over the years, I've been in a lot more sessions that are just geared for writing for other people and writing for younger people. I lean more pop. And Meg's definitely the person who pulls it back and always makes it more weird and interesting. And I feel like she's more creative than me, honestly. Oh, wow. Thanks, Dia. You're welcome. (laughs) (laughs) But it's interesting. Do you feel like that creates a good balance then? Because it's funny. I mean, you know, you look at any great songwriting team and you want someone who compliments any great team, period. You want someone who compliments what you're missing Mm -hmm. versus someone who does the exact same thing. Yeah, I feel like we definitely Mm complement each other. A lot of things I can do, Meg can't and vice versa. And um, our strengths definitely play into our weaknesses. And, you know, something I was just thinking that we do is that we write about each other's real life in a way that maybe we're not willing to do ourselves. Like we wrote mm-hmm. a song um, on our new record where Dia just, it was like so my life that it would have made me really uncomfortable if I would have written those what lyrics. Song? Koala. Oh yeah. But Koala. she wrote those lyrics and I was like, oh God damn, oh God damn, don't, put the, don't do this, don't do this. But she was doing it. So I was like, okay, she's doing it. You know, and then I wrote like distractions basically about you. Yeah. And so, like, in that way, we can touch on something without directly touching on it, having each other. Well, that's so interesting, though, too, because, you know, obviously it makes sense that, you know, as I talk about with artists all the time, you know, oftentimes you don't have perspective. Like, what I'll talk about with artists is, right, you make a record, and you don't know what it's about until months or years later, because you're so in the midst of it. That's so true. So, but it's interesting, then, for both of you, do you feel like, that's fascinating, that you learn things about yourself from what the other one writes because they have that perspective Mm -hmm. to write a song like Koala or Distractions that really shines light on things that you may not even be aware of. Yeah. I think sometimes it's weird because lyrically, lyrically it's very interesting because I think you can kind of dig into your subconscious in a weird way that sometimes when we're listening to a song months later, it can feel more real or the real meaning of it will kind of come to life. Oh, that's what I meant. You know, a song like American Guru, or we changed the name. It's American Spirit now. It was American <laughs> Guru before. But it's just, uh, it, yeah, it kind of takes on its own life after it's created, which is really interesting. How so? Talk, take me through the song a little bit. And um, how the, the life as it changed for both of you. So American Spirit, Meg's, Meg's a lot more spiritual than me. She used to meditate for a couple hours a day. She's been on silent retreats. She went to ayahuasca retreat in Peru. She's kind of a searcher. And I'm the person who's buried in these cheap self-help books at home with like, you know, a bottle of wine, (laughs) kind of figuring (laughs) out my own medication. And when Meg first wrote the lyrics for American Spirit, it was super spiritual, just over the top. And then it was funny because I kind of, So let's pull it back into both of our spiritualities. So it's interesting because American spirit is kind of the opposite ends of how people find help and center themselves and how it can be different from everybody. And then later on when we heard it, I just thought this is really true about how we have kind of grounded ourselves in our lives. And, you know, Meg goes off to Peru and 
I'm in LA trying to learn a monologue to help me find something. Um, so it's kind of an interesting process. Or Meg wrote Dear Heart, which really spoke to me. Um, and this album, we actually finished each other's songs a lot. We finished each other's sentence <laughs> songs. <laughs> no. Okay, that didn't work. But um, yeah, uh, when she first wrote the verses of Dear Heart and she sent it to me, I said, oh my gosh, this is for me. I feel like you're talking to me. And it does feel like sometimes we're sending letters to each other, or messages to each other. Because we know about each other's lives so much about what breakup we're going through or, you know, being scared, being in in our 30s and not knowing what's going on. I often freak out. I'm just like, Meg, I'm turning 32 this year. I have a roommate. I can barely pay my health insurance. What am I going to do? And, and, you know, she's always just a calming, calming voice because I feel like every other day I'll freak out about that. You know, it's it's a weird world putting out music and, and I'm still I, I work as a waitress at a restaurant on the weekends so it's kind of a balance of recording music writing music and then doing brunch hour you know <laughs> and, and trying to center everything all right I, there's so much to touch on in there <laughs> but we're gonna go back to first it's interesting because I think that that's one of the nice things too it's interesting how you guys balance each other out and complement each other in, in many respects but but I'm dying to know Megan in your journeys in your wanderings mm-hmm. You know, what What would be like the most fascinating piece of advice you found that you then give to Dia? Or that piece that you found for for yourself on your, as you as you put it earlier, your journey with, mm-hmm. I'm doing air quotes, which people can't mm-hmm. see. Mm-hmm. But when we're talking about, what was the drug again? Ayahuasca. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I feel like when you were laughing about the journey, there's mm-hmm. a, a backstory to that. Tell like it is, this is a This is what I, this is what I learned through all, all of my like searching air quotes. <laughs> <laughs> and you say like, Meg's so spiritual and like. Yeah, I do all the stuff. Like, I've done the spiritual circus. I've gone to the retreats. I've done the ayahuasca. But I've kind of gotten to the point where I don't really separate, like, a spiritual person from a worldly person. Like, the more you go on that journey searching, you kind of realize it's the same thing. Like, we're all spiritual. We're all worldly. It's just how you, what terms you use to describe this crazy, like, thing that we're doing called living a human life, you know? And so when I was going on my search and dabbling in drugs and meditation and and being a quote-unquote spiritual person. For me, I didn't realize that I was doing this, but what I was actually doing was kind of escaping my fears and like the hard parts in life and not really like stepping into my own, you know? And I think that kind of what I realized as Dee and I started our musical career and started our band, like, one of my biggest fears is like realizing how much I love music and how much I love art and that I feel like I'm put on the planet to like be a musician and share my art and that's what I love doing. And my fear of like not being able to make that into a career is so terrifying and overwhelming that I don't want to touch it, that I want to like escape into another job, that I want to escape into a relationship. I want to escape into becoming a spiritual person and pretend that I'm searching for something outside of myself, you know? And so recently, like even on this trip, um, or coming to visit DNLA and working on the record and all the other stuff that we're doing, like I finally realized like, I can't be afraid of this anymore. And I think, you know, maybe in a weird oddball way, like searching for something in you know, Peru, like brought me back to realize I'd never needed to go anywhere. Like all I needed to do was like face what was happening and step into my real life and accept that like, yeah, this is fucking scary, but I've got to do it like now here, like where I am. 
Well, it's interesting though for both of you, and it's funny because Dia from doing the voice, and you and I have known each other since you were on season one, as we mm-hmm. talked about. You know, you've gotten to be around so many musicians. Are there people then, and it's funny because we're talking about, like, it's interesting. We're, when you're talking about this, you guys are doing Disrupt Tour, right? With, like, Anthony Green, who I'm friends with. Bert from The Used, who I'm friends with. And these are people as well who, who you know, I feel like every musician deals with fear and insecurity. And, and you know, it, it, it's funny. I mean, if you don't feel that, then there's almost no point in doing it because, you know, you've gotten mm-hmm. complacent. So, but for you guys in particular, are there musicians that you've spoke to or just that you've watched even, whether it's in documentaries or just being around them, that kind of have inspired you or made you feel more comfortable with the fact of like, look, this is normal yeah. to have this feeling, but if it's something, you know, it, it's that we want to pursue, it's worth doing. Yeah. Honestly, the weird part about that question, the surprising part about that question is there haven't been a lot of musicians that I've experienced who've had the kind of same struggles with fear and anxiety that I feel. Um, And maybe that's because they're not speaking about it as much. But I guess it is interesting because Meg and I were kind of talking about as we do interviews, how open and vulnerable should we be? And I said, we should be 100% open because if somebody is going through the same struggles that I am with singing, for example, I want them to know that it's not they're not alone in it. Um, but I think over the years, getting out of the voice, the voice kind of put me into a perfection and competitive mindset. I, I had to be perfect or I was wrong. Or, it, you know, if I hit a bad note, it was death for me. It was, you know, if, if you hit a bad note in a bar and you're playing and having a good time, it's like, oh, that was bad, whatever, moving on. But on The Voice, it was this huge thing that could, you know, throw you off the show and and be this monumental moment. But um, over the past few, few years, I've, I've had a fear and anxiety with singing that has felt almost debilitating at times. I actually went to a doctor a couple months ago to get an anti-anxiety, like a beta blocker to help me perform without being nervous. And um, a couple singers that I know take them before they perform. And I actually can't take the medication because I have low blood pressure, blah, blah, blah. And it, would, it wouldn't be good for me. But I, you know, I got to the point where I went to a doctor for medication, for nerves and anxiety before I was performing. And that's how bad it feels sometimes, that fear of getting up on stage and not being perfect. And um, it's been a journey for me to get on stage and have fun again because when I get on stage sometimes, I'm counting the notes that I'm flat on or sharp or that wasn't sustained long enough or that vibrato was weird or that word was weird or I forgot that. or I, I just kind of rip apart our shows to the point where I can't enjoy them anymore. And that's still an ongoing process of trying to let go and just have fun because... You know, my favorite performer was Tom Petty. I went to one of his last shows, The Hollywood Bowl, and he's just fun. He makes you feel, he makes you forget about your life. And that's the point, not having somebody watch a perfect show. And I understand that, but I'm still, <laughs> you know, I go to a therapist for to try to help with this creative block. And Meg and I played a show a while back with... um uh, opening for When Harry Met Sally with Randall Park and all these people that we really love. And I was so nervous. I felt my heart in my throat, felt my ears on my toes. <laughs> you know, like my whole body was just all over the place. And it's it's hard to combat that fear. 
don't know. I mean, you've talked to so many musicians and some people, I mean, everybody gets nervous, but sometimes I feel like it's actually going to kill me on stage. Well, it goes to different people, but I want to go back to this for a second. Who got to recreate the orgasm scene in the reading of When Harry Met Sally? Um, Maya from Pen15. And it was great. Um, I'm a big fan of hers, and you should definitely check out Pen15 if you haven't seen it. But it was funny because when they got to the <laughs> orgasm scene, the whole audience just started clapping before <laughs> anybody even opened up their mouth. Meg actually hasn't seen the original When Harry Met Sally, so she still has yet to watch it. I know, so shame, you, shame. So you've never seen Meg Ryan's fake orgasm? I've never. You know what, though? I think I have seen Meg Ryan's fake orgasm, just like little blips of it. Just personally. I thought she's like, <laughs> just personally. <laughs> like, personally, she's sitting by me, and I just, no. But. It is interesting, though, going back to, you know, I mean, again, you can't talk about when Harry met Sally without that scene. Mm-hmm. So since you mentioned it, you know, I had to bring it up. But it's funny, because what you said, I, I remember going back years ago, and it, it's interesting. There was um, one of my favorite artists of all time. This is not public, so I won't say who it is. But, you know, every time I would ask someone at the label, when is this person going to tour again? And the response was very simply that they have such great stage fright since getting sober, <gasps> they, they won't, it's not going to happen. And it's interesting, I won't say who it is because it's not public. They, the label person just happened to hold me because they know I was a big fan. But even going back to dealing with um, Neil Diamond, who's been a friend for many, many, many years, which is mm-hmm. such a fucking weird thing to say. But he talked about the fact that, you know, he would actually sometimes get so nervous before shows. And this is a guy, This we're talking about maybe within the last five, ten years. Mm. So at this point, you're talking about a guy who's played the same number of level of sold-out shows as Springsteen and McCartney. Like, he's at that level of fame. He would get so nervous before shows, he would still throw up sometimes. And mm. he's like, if you don't feel that way, though, there's something wrong. Because you just don't care anymore. Mm-hmm. So it's interesting because... I, I think that maybe some people are, are more self-conscious about mm-hmm. talking about it, but most artists feel that way. But it's also, you talked about this too. It's funny because when you were talking about you know how vulnerable you should be in interviews, you and I talked a few years ago, I remember talking about vulnerability on social media. Mm-hmm. And I think it's getting much more acceptable. And I think people um, respond much better to that. I think people, now there's, as we talked about at the time, there's such a facade that exists with social media mm-hmm. of everything looking perfect. When in reality, everybody knows that no one's fucking life is perfect. That when you put yourself out there in a more vulnerable way, however that is, people respond to it strongly. And have you found that? And again, this is the first interview in 10 years, so mm-hmm. you don't know how people will respond to the interviews. But in general, just in your daily life, when you do put yourself out there in a way that is more open, have you found people do respond to it in a, in a stronger, different way? And I think, by the way, too, just as inside of that, I think that certainly happens in music as well. Mm-hmm. The more open you are in music, the more it connects with people. I completely agree. And and there's a lot of artists out there who are so open about depression, suicidal thoughts, um, anxiety, fear, uh, stage fright, like me. And I, I just... Whenever I'm listening to somebody else's interview, especially somebody that I look up to, it makes me feel like I'm not the only person alone who feels all these things, that I'm not a freak, that I'm, you know, it, it, I think it's so warm, like it's comforting to know that that people are feeling these things. And that's why I like to be open. And sometimes people will see me to show and just say, oh my gosh, you're just, and it's funny because sometimes people will say, you're nervous, but you were on The Voice, or but you were this, or but you were that. And, and you know, yes, I'm nervous and I've, I've played a million shows, but I still feel like this show could, I, I always say there's like a 10 second moment on during every show where I just freeze up and think I'm going to die. But there's also a 10 second moment 
during every show where I feel like I'm flying. I, I'd imagine it'd be like what cocaine would feel like. like yeah, <laughs> a big high and then a big low. But but I think it's it's nice to be open about that. But you said what do you what do you why do you think fear can get worse as you I guess get older and get hopefully better because you said Neil Diamond kind of you know, even in the last five or ten years or whatever, still feels that fear. Because it's when when we used to play shows when we were young, 18, 19, 20, I feel like we just kind of blindly, maybe it's a young, naive uh, cockiness that you don't deserve to have. But I feel like the, as the older we've gotten and the more experience we have, the more nervous I've gotten. I don't know how you feel, but... It's, I just had a thought. I don't know if this is true or makes sense, but this this could be like wrong or whatever. But like the older you get, the closer to death to death you're getting. And I know it's oh kind of like a God, psychological, man. like biological fear, you know? So maybe we're kind of like, I'm getting like closer to dying. Maybe that like fear kind of bleeds into things that you're doing the older you get. I thought you were gonna say something really enlightening there, and then it was just totally. <laughs> that the could be wrong. That could be wrong. I well, don't know. I think it's interesting. Everybody's gonna have a different feeling about it and a different response. It's funny. I do think most people get more comfortable as they get older, but I simply think that again, from dealing with so many musicians, look. I mean, if it's something you care about, you know, of course you want it to be right. Mm-hmm. You know, and most artists, by the way, are fucking nuts <laughs> by nature of this. You are. You have to. Like, it's funny because. Even what, you know, Meg, you were talking about the fear, right? Mm -hmm. I always say this. Look at the amount of rejection and things that a musician deals with. The starvation for a while, the hunger, you know, the the both physical and metaphysical hunger for both acceptance. And you're just fucking starving because you have no money. It's like there has to be a certain desperation that says this is the only thing that I can do. Mm -hmm. You know, because if you if you given a choice, look. Are you going to take the safe nine to five job and life, which no one has a nine to five job anymore, but you know what I mean, <laughs> you know, 10 to six, whatever it is, or that rejection and everything that eventually leads you to the 10 seconds on stage. Yeah. So I think there is a, a sort of, I had a point to this and now I've lost my own train of thought. I'm not going to lie. So I'm trying to reel it back in, but there is something <laughs> where you get to that and, and. You know, I think it just means so much to you. Yeah. That that you know you want. Oh, I know what I was gonna say. Like I talk about with artists all the time too, right? You, you no matter how great something is, you've never made a perfect record. No. Because yes. if you've made a perfect record, there's nothing. As I talk about with artists all the time, right? Even Coltrane after Love Supreme felt like I still need to do something else. Hmm. You know. So by nature, as an artist, you're never satisfied. You can't be. Yeah, that's true. Even with our album, there's so many little things that I'll hear that, you know, oh, in Warm Blood, we should have done this, or oh, I'm better at being young. That pause, that's, that's a, and it, it just kind of gets at you. Um, it's, it's hard. It's hard because records feel so permanent once they're mixed and mastered. You just think, wait, wait, wait. But it, it's a. It's so yeah. funny. One of my favorite stories from that of all time is interviewing Don Henley, right? Mm-hmm. Who's one of the greatest songwriters of all time. Mm-hmm. You know, certainly one of the greatest American songwriters. And we were talking about what song it is you wish you had written and why. And as we were talking about his choice, Paul Simon's The Boxer, a great song. That was the song he chose. We were talking about how many of his songs were songs that he felt, or how many of his songs were songs that people wish they had written. We talked about Heart of the Matter, and we talked about Desperado, which is just a perfect song. 
Mm-hmm. It really is. And it's funny. He goes, you know, he's like, I never like to say this publicly because I don't want to ruin it for fans. He's like, but we were 24 when we were, when I, I was 24 when we recorded that. And all I hear is that the drums at the end that I wish I could have redone. So, you know what? You're in good company. That is really interesting to hear because that is a beautiful song. It's just so beautiful. But of course, to the artists, it's never, you know. Hmm. So, what's the one song each of you wish you had written and why? <sighs> Man. I knew that question was coming. Oh. Whoa. Well, damn it. Now I'm getting predictable. What a loaded question. (laughs) Not really. I mean, you just go with the gut. I mean, I instantly went to Tom Petty, but now I'm like, which Tom Petty song? Mine would be Claire de Lune. I know that song doesn't have any, like, lyrics in it, but I just think it's so beautiful. Mm. Captures how I want to feel every moment. (laughs) Man. I would say maybe Last Dance with Mary Jane. That song makes me so happy. Whenever, and Tom Petty is such an artist that he always comes on when you're out at a restaurant or a bar or something. And whenever he comes on, this might be super creepy, but I just feel like, oh, it's my friend. He's singing to me. And he just <laughs> elevates whatever is going on. But um, yeah, that would probably be a good choice. All right. And I think that actually is a great wrap-up note because in that that massive gap of songs between Claire de Lune and Mary Jane's Last Dance, we can see somehow how that all ties together to make Megan Dia. How so? Because again, it, it kind of sums up the whole interview, which is that dichotomy that somehow complements each other. Mm, it, yeah, we're very, very different, but also very the same. I mean, so is there one song you guys have written yet that you feel would be that perfect marriage between Claire de Lune and Mary Jane's Last Dance? Oh my gosh. Now you're giving us anxiety because we feel like we have to go out and write it. (laughs) Well, what's the closest? I would say maybe American Spirit because that went through a lot of changes. And that was a lot of both Meg and I together in a marriage that worked. Because I feel like a lot of our songs lean more like Meg was steering the ship more for Dear Hearts. I was steering the ship more for, I don't know teenagers i think yeah so we kind of but american spirit was definitely a big marriage of both of us you know in harmony (laughs) what do you guys want to add we didn't talk about hmm what should we add relationships fear of dying being 32 being afraid i feel like at least for me i'm at a stage in my life where the question of do you want kids is coming up more than ever before. And that question stresses me out so much because, you know, 32, people are asking about kids. Everyone's having kids. And I'm just alone in my apartment thinking, do I want kids? And then also, like, what am I going to do? Be a single mom waitress slash musician with a child? And then I have to open a bottle of wine and just, you know, forget about that conversation. Isn't it weird when you have these problems and issues that I just ignore them? Like, they pop up and bubble up, and I ignore them. Meg, do you want to add <laughs> I think I want to. <laughs> on that note, should we just end there? I think, that you, I think that in this interview, we kind of focused a lot on, about, like, the dark side of music and relationships. But I think maybe I would like to add... You know, with with every shadow, there's light. And we didn't necessarily say, like, I didn't say how much I love the record that we just made and how I think that it's our best record and how I think that even though I'm scared to perform, like, I think we've come such 
a long way in just being able to realize like where we can improve and how we can improve and that that the process is also extremely fun and exciting and makes you feel alive and that you know I think that it's worth it are you just giving hope to everybody who is listening to our I just don't want to end <laughs> On such a such a this dark is very note. Meg actually. <laughs> like I will end any story or conversation with, well, we're fucked. Do you want to get coffee next Monday or like what's going on? And Meg's like, you know, let's just be grateful for where we are and like what we have, and we're getting better. I we mean, were in practice you could look the other at day. Anything no, it's good. Way. This is the yin and the yang, right? Or is that how you say yin and yang? Yeah. 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 Oh, see what? Yeah. I mean, it depends on where you okay. are. But um, this is this is that Meg will kind of balance it out for example we were in practice the other day and I, I I started crying and literally running my head into the wall and I thought oh my gosh I'm never gonna get better I've been practicing and I keep doing this stupid no my mouth tightens up and I suck at singing and Meg just said we're getting better every time every practice we're getting better and we're growing you know I like, have to kind of say that to convince myself so <laughs> <laughs> but it's good that is definitely you know, if you hang out with both of us at the same time, even when it comes to business decisions, when we're talking to management or label about different things, even the other day I said, Meg, you always make me bad cop and you're a good cop. Why? Because <laughs> I'm always just more stressed out about stuff. Well, now wait, now we've got another idea for a movie because now I want to see you guys in a, in a buddy cop movie with Diaz the bad cop and yes. Meg is the good cop, you know? It, it could run into a double feature with the reality oh counseling show. Mm-hmm. What's Rihanna? that amazing buddy cop movie with um, the guy from Back to the Future, uh, Michael J. Fox and... James cop? Woods, The Hard Way? I think where he's like the celebrity, but he's doing the ride-along to learn how to be a cop. I believe so, but but... Given Republican values now, I don't want to promote James Woods on the show. So. <laughs> Let's just focus on Michael J. Fox. <laughs> we'll, we'll just, we're going to delete that out because fuck James Woods. I'm sorry. <laughs> so anyway, well, maybe there's another buddy cop movie that you would pattern the Megan Dia. Buddy cop. Oh, well, this isn't a good buddy cop movie, but I mean, it's a great movie, but the relationship isn't great. But Training Day, I mean, <laughs> Denzel, Ethan. Oh, have you seen Training Day? You have not, huh? No. I have to educate Meg on movies because <laughs> she's losing it, man. She walked out of Aladdin. <laughs> she actually that's against your person because she said it was just too nice and Jafar was nice and everybody was nice. And there was not enough. There was no chaos. Like, yeah, no conflict. So she walked out of the new Disney's Aladdin. Who does that, Meg? And on that, <laughs> I don't, really know, I, I don't know what to there, say you know? after that. Really, don't know how to respond. Yeah, you know, I mean, I feel like you know this. This, I feel like we need a sequel in a year. There's so many unanswered questions. Will Dia have kids? <laughs> Will I have kids? You know, my my safe answer to that always was simply, I would never have a kid that I wouldn't like as much as my dog. So mm. you know, and I liked my dog better. So you can always seal that line. Fair enough. You know, fair enough. Mm-hmm. I might just stick with my godson. Call it a day. <laughs> and then in a year from now we're going to have a rundown too of which movies Meg has seen and not seen yet yes I need to watch more movies I guess she'll definitely have seen When Harry Met Sally and Training Day if she's staying at my house cool well this was uh, <laughs> this was enlightening <laughs> actually it was a blast so for the first interview in 10 years it was uh, a lot of fun oh, thanks for I still having wanna, us I still want to see that reality TV show though man I really want to see the Gallagher brothers go through counseling I want to see the Cohen brothers. Mm. But they seem like 
I don't know. They don't I, seem like they fight as much. Yeah, so, exactly. Yeah. They, I mean, you have to get along very well to make those masterpiece movies, so... I don't know. I would assume. I don't know. I mean, the Gallagher's made some pretty fucking great music. The Kinks made some pretty fucking great music. Mm-hmm. I, I mean, know they come were on, brothers. the Kinks made, and they don't make, you know, they're not together, you know? Hmm. So, cool. <laughs> Dude, this was a fun one. We didn't really know how doing a two-person My Turning Point was going to go. It helps when you've known the people forever. It helps when they're as awesome as Megan Dia. And it helps that we were having peanut butter whiskey to start all of this. So, but this was the first My Turning Point with two guests. Very happy with it. Hope you enjoyed it as well. And we will be back with you soon. Under Armour's Infinity High Sports Bra. Its ergonomic design is molded to support the natural movement of your body. With cord-out padding, the better breathability eliminates extra bulk without sacrificing support. And quick-dry padding is Under Armour's fastest drying padding yet. When you're lifting heavy, running fast, and pushing yourself further than ever before, you need a bra that will help you go that extra mile and make you feel your best. Shop the Infinity High Sports Bra now at UA.com. If you look around, there are so many ways to make a difference. At Capella University, our FlexPath format gives you a different way to earn your degree. Take courses at your speed. Move on whenever you're ready. Education should fit your life. Learn more at capella.edu. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points.